another episode of today's lesson a nick cave podcast i'm andrew and i'm sean and today we are kicking off the fourth album by nick cave and the bad seeds it's called your funeral my trial sean how you doing oh, i'm doing fantastic it's a, it's a beautiful day. This is a beautiful album. I've been listening to it all day, and I'm just I'm stoked to dig in because I'll just come out and say it. Sad Waters is one of my favorite Nick Cave songs. Right on. Yeah, we, uh, we're kicking it off with Sad Waters, the first song on the original double EP uh, version of the album. Uh, the CD release has a completely different track list. Not sure why that is. But yeah, Sad Water is a good song. Um, yeah, I've been listening to this album a lot too uh, to get kind of prepared. But before we kind of, you know, approach this from from this new perspective we've kind of gotten listening to it a bunch, where were you at on this album, uh, you know, before we kind of came to it for the podcast? Yeah, so a lot like the previous album, uh, it did not even register for me. It was it was something that existed, and every once in a while I listened to the Carney, and uh, other than that, I don't know. Sad Waters, I could I could tell you that was on the album, but um, there there wasn't even really a whiff of of feeling for it at all, and so that it's even on my radar right now is is pretty cool. <laughs> where are you where were you at with all this before this run through? Um, pretty much the same place as you. It was an early one that I had listened to, uh, kind of like Firstborn is Dead, where, you know, I was coming to it from other albums. Um, I think we mentioned this, but um, I think our first sort of introduction to Cave was through, you know, later stuff, Abattoir Blues era. Um, but I came to this one pretty quick afterwards, and it didn't hit me super hard. There are a couple songs that we'll get to that I was a big fan of right off the bat. Um, but this is definitely a grower to me compared to some of the other albums uh, that we've listened to that were a little more immediate. Um, but yeah, very much the same experience as you, very much the same experience as with the uh, album right before this. Sean, I'm going to get into some background uh, about the album before we transition to talking about the song, if that's all right with you. Ooh, please do. I don't. I don't know a whole lot about this album. As I said, I, it wasn't even on my radar, and so I'm. I'm excited to learn. Well, uh, pull up a chair, and uh, chair noise, <laughs> and get comfortable, because since we last left our heroes, they had released a third album called "Kicking Against the Pricks." Um, 
1986, a year after uh, the album we just talked about, The Firstborn is Dead. As we touched on, it's an album of cover tunes, uh, hence us kind of holding off on it for now. But the band had sort of credited it with sort of allowing themselves to indulge uh, their different influences and and maybe even build up their musical chops, so to speak. Um, Mm. And that's something I definitely hear, um, not to get ahead of ourselves, but that does seem like a big difference on this album from the last two. Yeah, kind of, kind of get some stuff out of their system, and like you said, build up their repertoire. I, I definitely hear that. Yeah, definitely. Um, that album, "Kicking Against the Pricks," was the first to feature Swiss drummer Thomas Vidler, um, who's actually the only member still in the group today from this early uh, period. Um, he takes over drumming duties from uh, uh, Mick Harvey for the most part going forward. Um, there are exceptions, much like Sad Waters, the song we'll talk about today. That's uh, the great Mick Harvey. Um, but yeah, this album, uh, Your Funeral, My Trial, was released later in the same year, actually months, a matter of months after the cover album, uh, which is pretty impressive. Produced by Flood and Tony Cohen, as all albums to this point have been. Um, The album and titular track share their title with a blues song by Sonny Boy Williamson. Kind of interesting, since we are decidedly not in blues country anymore. Um, (laughs) Yeah, that's odd. Yeah, that seems like that would have been a good choice for the last album, but Hmm. especially with some of the subject matter in that one compared with this one. This album was originally released as a double EP, um, two sets of four songs on two 45s, uh, which I think sort of exemplifies the fact that this is just, uh, compared to the last two albums, it feels more like a collection of songs as opposed to something with a strong thread running throughout. Not to get, again, too ahead of ourselves, but is that something you sort of uh, identify with uh, with this album? Yeah, and I, I mentioned it last time as well. The, I think you felt that the last album was far more cohesive than I did, but it, it all of the albums up to this point have kind of felt like they have a they have a thread and a theme, but um, it's more a compilation of ideas. It's more of you know them setting groundwork for something else, and this album even does away with that theme. I can't I can't put my finger on what this is, and and to me it's it's the best representation so far of something new and something unique. And, and in that, I think the album is very exciting. It's, it's all over the place that tracks. Yeah. I could put them together in a, in a single category of any kind, save for the fact that they're all bad seeds. And I, I think that that's pretty cool. Yeah, definitely. And, and, you know, we'll address that more as we get into it, but yeah, that d- d- definitely feels like, you know, releasing it as, as this fractured piece sort of speaks to the uh, more fractured nature of this album. You know, I, I think even From Her to Eternity is a lot more cohesive uh, sounding than this one, but yeah, it's just sort of the way where I think you and I are aligned and maybe other people don't feel that way. But uh, Thomas Vidler, the new drummer, did have an accident uh, as this album was being recorded. Uh, according to Blixa, he fell out of bed, which was, I guess, up high, and maybe went through a window. <laughs> um, 
at least part of him, I guess. So his hand got all fucked up. Oh, no. Um, hence, you know, this album's fairly split down the middle between uh, Mick Harvey and Thomas uh, doing the drums. Um, and according to Blix, also, there's one song on this album that we'll get to where uh, he's only got one hand. So he is credited for playing a fire extinguisher. What the fuck? Okay, I'm I'm excited for that. I don't know where that is. Oh we're gosh. we're taking a lot of unreliable, potentially, people at their word also on this stuff. So, but came from came from the the Blix's mouth. <laughs> I don't I don't think there's a more reliable source. So. <laughs> That's true. I trust that man implicitly. <laughs> I am just imagining them all in bunk beds. Um, that's what i'm thinking they have to have been in bunk beds right <laughs> and to to roll the wrong way out a window huh that's that's pretty amazing up there with def leopard the one-handed <laughs> one-handed drummers well thankfully this was a temporary uh version of that um <laughs> He couldn't get quite good with it, so he had to play the fire extinguisher. Yeah, the the Def Leppard guy is much more impressive, honestly. Fucking in incredible. They wrote Photograph. He played it. I mean, you know. Come on. Certified banger. Some interviews with Mick Harvey uh, sort of revealed that he did a lot of the heavy lifting on the music here. Um, Blixa would be gone for long periods. Thomas was hurt. Barry Adamson, who played on the last uh, couple albums, left partway through, um, so his bass is only present on a couple songs. Nick Cave was having kind of a rough time with uh, heroin uh, through this album and, and the next. So this is a lot of Mick crafting sort of a layered and musically complex album um, in terms of the arrangements. Uh, uses a lot of odd time signatures, which isn't a, a staple of the Bad Seeds, but does pop up occasionally. Um, but yeah, this this feels like the Mick Harvey show a little bit to me, and that might be why we sort of see more, uh, I guess, structure throughout the album musically. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it, I don't know, kind of explains some of the turns they've taken down the road, especially after, you know, Mick's departure um that this would you know when they come into their own kind of led musically that way um because his influence really doesn't go away for a long long time and it really does give the sound of the seeds yeah definitely um this album also heralds sort of a transition towards more personal songwriting from from cave more love songs still with an undercurrent of, of of menace um we start to see you know, more complete compositions and a shift, you know, even further away from kind of the, the raw uh, power of the birthday party in the last two uh, original Nick Cave albums. Yeah. Yeah. And even a shift, I'd say the menace never leaves and I would hate yeah. it if it did. Um, but that rawness gives way to more melancholy and nostalgia. It, it's more sadness. It's more introspection, I think. And um to me, especially on this listen through, there's there's a lot more to think about uh, than the last two albums lyrically, um, even if the lyrics aren't quite as strong as he eventually makes them. That's a, actually a really good point. This album, you know, I find myself in my feelings a bit more, thinking about emotional sort of things 
a little more, whereas I'm maybe more of a fan of the lyrics on the first two albums uh, compared yeah. with this one in terms of just sheer imagery. Um, but there's yep. some really great lyrics on here. There's some that uh, maybe I'm not a huge fan of. Yeah, it's an emotional album. Probably the uh, the one that hits me the hardest in that way of the ones we've talked about thus far. And I think it's largely it's a shift towards a more poetic style of lyric writing in that, you know, yeah, the, the last two albums have some very exciting pieces. Um, but there's there's more digging to be done here and there's more there's more poetry in the words. I think he's he's coming into his own in that way. Yeah, and I think he also takes that that emotional sort of side and really weaves it into his performance on this album. I really love, even if the lyrics aren't all bangers to me, the performance of all the songs, much like the last album, uh, really carry some stuff that might otherwise be a little less, uh, you know, leave a little less of an impression on me uh, than something like, you know, From Her to Eternity or whatever. Yeah, yeah. There are no videos for this album, nor are any of the album tracks singles. But there is a song called Scum, a CD-only track uh, that was released as a single around this time. And we will uh, probably wrap up the album by talking about that one. Um, yeah, you answered my one question. I thought Scum was a single. Um, what? Why? I guess why wasn't the Carney a single? I just, whenever I've listened to this album, <laughs> even when it wasn't really registering for me, that just that song just stood up and it, it stood above the rest and I, you can't miss it. And so it's odd to me. Was there any, any indication anywhere of, as to why there were no singles off this album? Uh, I don't know. I think it would be kind of hard to pick one for me, honestly, but, uh, and we can get into it. Uh, we'll be doing the Carney next. Um, but just to hit that right now, well, the Carney's long as hell and isn't very <laughs> catchy. Uh, it is a standout, though, uh, I would say among these these early albums. But it's super long, and there is a kind of a special performance of it um, that we will talk about that I think maybe would have led them away from at least doing a video for it. Uh, but we'll get to that uh, in the next episode. Right on, right on. Yeah, it is. It is a weird one. It's it's very strange. So, not cracking the Billboard top two hundred songs. <laughs> yes, that'd be amazing. Maybe the independent uh, clown music <laughs> chart. I think it could have. make the clown jams one hunt top one hundred. <laughs> Hong Kong, this is. Uh, <laughs> clown jams radio we got the carney 24 7 uh boy, maybe oing, we'll oing. slip in some <laughs> boy oing, oing. we're gonna slip in some icp every once in a while it's it's just the carney and icp there's got to be something else right one of the slip the Barnum and bailey uh, theme <laughs> um, just described the most nightmarish radio station imaginable yeah, hard pass on that, actually, uh, for me. <laughs> uh, Nick Cape said in 2009, This has always been the band's favorite record. Or for a long time it was. We really hit on something there. Some really delicate, strange, abstracted kinds of songs that I really loved. 
So that seems odd to me because I just feel like there's so many more important or raw or well-produced or meaningful albums in their career. But it really says something about this album that it is a curiosity to the band and they really you know felt good about making it even if some of them were gone for long periods of time yeah and that that's really cool to hear it's the sort of thing that makes me want to dig in and understand it more if it really is that important to the creators i i don't think it's something worth breezing over and skipping and so i'm i'm actually personally very glad that we're doing this so that um it can make its way into whatever ranking I might have of these albums. I, it's also cool to see the acknowledgement that it's, you know, disparate. It's just, it's a collection of things, but um, in that, yeah, I, I think that there's a lot of growth happening here. Yeah. There, this, this album does feel like a, a sizable leap from the last one, even if a lot of it's just Mick Harvey doing a thousand overdubs Um <laughs> but yeah, really, really interesting and moody album. Sean, shall we jump into the first track on this album, Sad Waters? Hold your nose. Water's warm, but it's going to get... Uh... No, wait. <laughs> Hold your nose, because we're diving right in. Glug, glug. Uh, <laughs> who wrote this song? Uh, Nicholas Cave. Nick Cave himself. It's a cave-cave joint. Music and lyrics. Now, I don't know that I put a lot of stock into this stuff because I feel like Mick Harvey is pretty much doing a lot of the heavy lifting musically. But, you know, we do have uh, Cave on harmonica and uh, I believe organ on this song. Uh, so, you know, he was he was a huge part of, of the music for a lot of these songs. Yeah. Absolutely. And and this song, musically, I mean, can just start with that, feels pretty straightforward to me. It's, you know, a, a guitar riff and guitar, just the backbone of the song um, that would not be lost in a, in a Lou Reed or a Velvet Underground song. Um, mm. Nothing too crazy happening, I think, with the drums. It all, it all fits together so nicely, especially from the frayed edges and, and weird, you know, blues and and odd noises from the first two albums um this one just the album begins in such a pleasant and and really gorgeous way with the composition um it doesn't surprise me that that he is playing big here and some of the weirder stuff comes later when it's clear that mccarvey is doing you know all sorts of stuff yeah i i um definitely agree with that assessment uh it's it's one of the simpler songs musically um that's not to say there aren't a lot of layers, but it's not as, as wild as some of the stuff that comes later, uh, at least musically. You know, you got guitar, bass, organ, harmonica, um, and that high whining guitar tone that feels like maybe Blixa interspersed throughout. And there's a cool thing with the drums where it's just kind of a slow, steady drum beat, but it kind of picks up right before like verse two and three, like it's leading you into the... Uh, the next part and that's a it's a nice little touch from from harvey there yeah absolutely it it's the closest i think we've seen them get to a pop song or just to a, a straight ahead song song that you could hear on the radio it so really far. is yeah no 
which is itself an accomplishment. <laughs> yeah. After some of this shit. Coming all the way from uh, from uh, wings off flies to to something like this is is definitely growth in a very short period. I mean, that first album came out two years prior, if that. So. Yeah, and I'm growth. I'm gonna go on a little tangent here. I feel like bands used to grow much faster than they do today. Um, getting getting way into like Zeppelin and Sabbath and all this, there's just this breadth of work where they go through so many different iterations. And then you look at the discography and they all came out within like a year or two of each other. And there's just like this sporadic burst of all this shit and the band just goes through so many transformations. And I just don't feel like we get that anymore. And I don't know. Maybe I'm just missing the people that are doing it, but... Well, yeah, if you're um, the weekend and you have eight different writers for each song and six producers and the record label doesn't want you to be overexposed, you're only releasing an album every, you know, three or four years. There might, there might be a lot of growth there or whatever, but not to single him out, obviously, but, you know, it's just such an industry now if you are at a point when you can really sit back and make music that I think, you know, these bands that were really incentivized to release more stuff and tour and and be together and write stuff you know it it they were able to do stuff more often um without you know risk of quote-unquote overexposure or whatever and i feel like yeah 70s and 80s we really had had that a lot and to release two albums even if one's a cover album in the same year super impressive yeah it's just so much music. It's so much content. And yeah, that's interesting. I, I never thought about it, but there was much more of an incentive for volume back in the day, or not even an incentive, just a lack of incentives for anything, but just music to, you know, make your living than there is today. And today there really is this incentive to sit back and uh, passively gain income from, you know, once every couple of years, releasing something that people will continue to listen to and get hyped for the next album years down the road. Huh. Corporations kill everything. That's true. And and I mean, these albums probably were the product of, of that in some uh, respect. But I'm sure these boys were unreasonable enough to kind of, you know, carve out their own little <laughs> pocket uh, within that industry. So, but yeah, uh, that's the music. Want to want to jump into the lyrics? Let's do it. Tangent over. Let's again, hold your nose. We're diving in to these sad waters. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll start off and I'll just get something out of the way. This song holds a very special meaning to me um, because the first lyrics here, down the road I look and there runs Mary. Um, my special lady friend's name is Mary. And so I listen to this song and there's just an inbuilt sentimentality to it that uh, really makes me a little scared for the song in case you know <laughs> things ever change in the future but uh right now it's, that's one it's... song you'd have to just cross off the fucking nick cave list man <laughs> I've, I've already had to do that that's it i i would have to uh yeah take it off the album which would be a real shame but um i, think I dated that that... a black paul for a long time so that <laughs> song's you know persona non grata for me dude i loved paul i still can barely listen to that song but um yeah i I think it i think that speaks to the content of the song as we'll as we'll get into here um so so down the road i look and there runs mary hair of gold and lips like cherries 
the the singer is describing obviously a very very beautiful woman um running down some open road in front of him the music is is giving off a very bright very summery cheerful um feel and these two lines specifically are actually from a different song um I know. And guess who guess who sang this song at one point early in its life? I you know, I couldn't tell you. Uh well, it was Johnny Cash and Elvis. Um, wow. Surprise. I know. I know. Surprise, surprise. But it was actually written by a man named Curly Putman. Uh the song is Green Green, Grass of Home, and initially popularized by Tom Jones, which is seriously fucking weird but uh you know more power to him um the song was a country song that was about a man um in prison fondly remembering a time prior to that basically daydreaming of stepping back onto the green grass of his home for the first time in a long time and seeing his family seeing you know everything that he remembered the green grass it's so good to stand on the green grass um and then waking up at the end of that song in prison in a in a in a way very reminiscent of uh, Knockin' on Joe from the previous album. And yeah, it, it immediately adds this melancholy feel. I, I didn't know that until I started looking things up, but now that I do, it it wraps the whole thing in melancholy. And I'm not going to, I'm not going to fall directly into saying that that is just, you know, this is a riff on that idea. I think that there's more here than that, but it is an interesting way to begin the song as, as kind of a tribute and not so much a cover. Um, and I really like that coming off of a cover album. It's still, they're so clearly influenced by the music that built them. But as we said earlier, I think, I think they kind of got that out of their system and they're ready to make their own out of, out of these different pieces. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and you know, that song kind of tricks you, um, you're not really led to believe until later that that he's not free and it's really beautiful and I, there is something about him including those lines right off the bat that i don't think it totally changes the perspective i did already have but it does sort of recontextualize the song and it, there is this weird feeling and and we'll get into it as we go but you're waiting for the other shoe to drop basically and I, the first time I heard this song, you know, it's called Sad Waters. I'm just waiting for the turn. And uh, yeah. we'll, we'll get to, you know, whether or not that happens. Yeah, absolutely. Waiting for the turn, especially because the music, again, is so bright. I don't know. It's there, There's a melancholy thread to it, but it's, it's to me, a happy song. It's, it's one of, you know, fond memories and, and good times. And so it's, it's interesting that they start with that and, and move on. Um, but let's see if the other shoe falls as we continue. So we go down the river where the willows weep, take a naked root for a lover's seat that rose out of the bitten soil, but bound to the ground by creeping ivy coils. And so this is just more explanation as to what's going on. It, it appears that he's caught up with her and they're resting under a willow on um, one of the willows naked roots that is ridden out, uh, risen out of um bitten soil which i don't know kind of places this in winter to me i bitten kind of implies frostbitten uh you wouldn't tell it by the music again this is this is kind of bright it's happy at this point in the previous album you know a lot of times when you get the music it, it very clearly describes exactly where you are and 
most of the time kind of telephones in how you're supposed to feel about what's happening. Um, this lyric is kind of the first indication that maybe there is a different setting than is implied or you're led to believe. So this almost feels like some shoe, I don't think it's the other shoe, but I think that some shoe is falling somewhere in the distance uh, with this line. Yeah, I think the the, the sort of undercurrent of unease, um, you know, I have the imagery of weeping willows, you know, this the sensual imagery of the naked root and the lover's seat, um, the bitten soil, you know, I, I just get a real summary vibe when I listen to this song and, and maybe the bitten soil was winter and this is sort of a new love that's coming out of the ashes of an old love, perhaps. Yeah. Um, and then creeping ivy coils is, is very sinister in its weird way, but, <laughs> but just natural imagery that's, that's very beautiful. Yeah, natural imagery and, and you know, not banging your head with it, but, but somewhat sexual imagery. So I think there is a, mm -hmm. a, something to be said about that new life. Um, you know, naked root, lover's seat, rose, all the, all this stuff is used later by Cave himself um, in that way. And so I think it is is a promise of new life, um, or at least, you know, new life after some minor inconvenience prior. Yeah, or um, I, I, I kind of take it as a, as a breakup um, or an old relationship or just solitude. You know, if you, if you like the bitten soil equals winter thing, I think that's, that's kind of where I would my mind would naturally wander yeah right on um but the the narrator makes very clear how he feels towards mary oh mary you have seduced my soul forever a hostage of your child's world and so i'll, I'll come back to this line um later i have too much to say about it but um the way i read this first was kind of calling her um childlike and and describing her as um perhaps innocent in that you know her child's world I, I took this as possessive child um hostage in this world of innocence and and implying somewhat that the speaker is not so innocent and is perhaps vacationing here um but that you know he, he finds a great deal of joy and and seduction in the idea that this person is so so innocent um and you know holds him hostage a hostage of love yeah, and again, w with stuff we've we've read before of his, uh, there's some some maybe perhaps, you know, less than savory kind of things that can rise with that. But I think, you know, this song is pretty earnest, and I do like that um, idea of, especially coming from like the bitten soil. Like this person's probably been hurt before. Maybe this other person hasn't, um, and maybe you know just the. Even as we age, we all kind of have this childlike wonder, and maybe that's something that's sort of warming the cockles of his heart, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. And yeah, you can't ignore that we've we've talked about that childlikeness <laughs> prior, and so this, I believe, is no little girl tree. Yes, um, this, this song is is far more feeling and caring, and I, I and wholesome. It feels wholesome to me. Yes. Every everything is more wholesome than "Say Goodbye to the Little Girl Tree," but uh, mm -hmm. I I don't think there's any any danger here, and it's it's an interesting foil. You know, it's it's using some of the same imagery in a completely different way. Um, and with that, <laughs> verse two. <laughs> That's right. Um, verse two, and then I ran my tin cup heart along the prison of her ribs. Um, 
very reminiscent to me of knocking on Joe, but yes. I, I feel like this is, uh, again, a very different feel in that, uh, you know, he's a prisoner of love. He's not a prisoner of the state. He's not, he's not waiting on death row per se. Maybe if you're taking the reference to, um, green, green grass of home, literally, you could argue that this is, this is where the shoe falls. Uh, but it, it feels like perhaps this is a longing to be noticed by his lover. You know, it, it kind of sets this even farther back in memory where it, it's likely not him recounting something that's happening, but the music at this point has swelled to a point where it feels kind of misty. It feels like it's someone recalling fondly. And so this feels to me like he is still trapped in someone who perhaps doesn't notice him. And, you know, his tin cup is kind of a way to call attention to that, perhaps in vain. Yeah, we, um, th this is another strong sort of, I would say, call back to Green Green Grass. I think, you know, for me, it kind of recalls maybe like, just the, the image I had here was not of a literal jail. Um, you know, obviously that's not what, what either of us are saying, but I just kind of get the feeling of like running your hands over somebody's ribs almost but definitely feels like a knowing callback to green, green grass and maybe is almost like in a weird way, Cabe's attempt to conjure that, but also back to the future style, write <laughs> the wrongs of that song and make it kind of happier, which. No. And I think, I think it is a distinct callback and I think he is in, in whichever way he is trying to turn this into something that isn't just a carbon copy or a retelling of that story. Um, a very inverse St. Huck situation where he makes very much so. that reference and that material much more fucked up. <laughs> it's like he's just kind of bringing a little sunlight to this old, uh, really heartbreaking song. That's right. And I, I love that idea of of him touching the ribs from the outside. Um, almost as though for then once. her... For once. <laughs> exactly. Um that her heart might be the prisoner, that her heart itself, it's its the sort of thing where maybe she is so innocent and she has such love for the world around her. I just feel like there's such a joy at this point that he's, he, that that sort of love may not be able to be communicated fully um, outside of, outside of herself. And perhaps he, he longs for that. That might be a stretch and I might not be making any sense, but um no, I love it. You know, I I hadn't thought about that, and I, I like that uh, flip flop. I was picturing him there, behind the ribs, going help, help. But no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm small Nick Cave. <laughs> <laughs> Magic school bus Nick Cave is trapped. Well, this isn't the first time we've uh, had that rib imagery. You know, maybe some Adam and Eve in the garden sort of deal. Um, you know, Mary yeah. obviously is kind of a has a religious context to the name. I don't think that's unintentional, but I don't think uh, we're meant to belabor that all that much either. Well, you might want to prepare for some belaboring in a little <laughs> well, bit because <laughs> I mean I know we will in a like a few lines, but it's coming. Prepare to be belabored. Um, <laughs> we're continuing going on. into labor <laughs> on this podcast. Uh and then with a toss of her curls, that little girl goes wading in, rolling her dress up past her knee, turning these waters into wine. Oh. And so here, here, I mean, here we oh, go. Oh, shit. <laughs> oh, no. This is some, some fairly obvious biblical imagery. Um, what it means at this point, 
is I think totally up in the air, but you know, she's, she's walking into the water and, um, the water has turned into wine and whether that is the speaker imagining, you know, she's, she's making magical this, this totally normal thing. If it's perhaps blood imagery, I don't know. Um, Andrew, do you have any strong feelings about this? (laughs) Well, I, I think the, um, the Adam and Eve thing is much more subtle and maybe not even intended. This to me just kind of, yeah, the way I would read it just on first glance is, you know, everything tastes sweeter, you know, when you're in love. And uh, this scene might be magical just by yourself enjoying nature. Um, but obviously it's going to be, it's going to go beyond uh, earthly things uh, when you're in love. And I, I think that's where I, where I take it. And then this, this final line, um, then she planted all the willow vines much like that first line, uh, turning these waters into wine. It's someone just sort of, you know, if you take platted as, as to braid, you know, just taking nature and, and making it prettier. And it's also a little strangely weird and unhinged to do that to a plant. So it's, <laughs> you know, just that kind of who else would do this, but this love it's, it's odd behavior and it's, it's beautiful in its own way. Yeah, no, it's um, very much, I think, picturing her as a, as a child of nature, as, you know, this innocent sprite mm. of sorts that's this wading into the water, um, performing miracles. You know, the water into wine was a miracle in the Bible, and, you know, to see that is, is something truly miraculous. And, yeah, it's it's odd that someone would do that with the tree, but it it's almost becomes an extension of her at that point. Um I think there might also be something to be said about, you know, turning the waters into wine being a, a image of birth, um, a natural birth in the water. The, the, when I heard this, I don't know what really called it, but the water turning red, um, I think it was my immediate instinct to be like, Nick Cave killed her. The song is about him stabbing her in the water. <laughs> um, but it, We're, we're it having seemed... to adjust from that. We are. And so I think that there, I don't think that it was perhaps lost on him that this was somewhat bloody imagery, but I think it's in this, um, in this fable that he's painting or this memory that he's painting, perhaps a reference to, um, yeah, the miracle of childbirth, the, you know, the connection that he had with this woman or this ideal, um, being, being something to do with that. And so it's just, yeah, it's, it's the first time that I would see him you know, create this, this imagery of sorts and not immediately think that it's a reference to some sort of horrendous murder. So. Well, and, and, and to, uh, to back that up, you know, if you take that turning these waters into wine as potentially, yeah, like it's violent or maybe she's violent against him, whatever. Then the next line is then she planted all the willow vines. Like, no, it's okay. Cause then this happened unless yep. you take it as she, is killing him which there's a reading there for that but i just don't uh i choose not to go there maybe well this next line mary in the shell is <laughs> laughing very sinister stuff she's chuckling over his corpse over where the carp dart um no this it, i think that this blows it out of the water so to speak um because after that spooked by the new shadow that she cast across these sad waters and across my heart um 
it really drives home the innocence here that, you know, she's in the shallow, she's laughing, and her own shadow, that shadow imagery is something that he'll deal with a lot on this album particularly, Mm. Um, but that she would be, you know, spooked or or, um, frightened by by the mere sight of herself blocking whatever light is around that her own shadow might cause her distress is one of the ultimate symbols of innocence, I think. Yeah, so. I, I mean, I take this the carp as being uh, who are spooked by the shadows that she cast personally. Um, oh, but uh, I have to say, over where the carp dart is the most. Just saying it, it just doesn't sound good. But boy, does he make it sound good in the song. His vocal delivery on these songs is incredible and this song is certainly you know no exception if you can make that sound good man can make anything sound good (laughs) he makes it sound so good i had no idea that's what he was saying until i actually read the lyrics (laughs) um yeah no this uh this performance is it's everything that the song should be it's it's longing it's melancholy it's it's joy but it's just so tinged with sadness throughout and there's nothing explicitly sad here until this last line across these sad waters and across my heart you know he really has to lay it out that this is a sad scene that this is something that he's you know there is melancholy here um because the rest of it it just it just feels so bright and so alive yeah um i that's interesting i I'll get to that kind of a little later. Um, th- this is this is the end of the song. These are all the all the lyrics that there are, and and something that that really adds to that that delivery and sort of the you know classic sort of ballad nature of the song is. And and we didn't mention this during the music, but the vocals are double tracked. So there's these offset deliveries of these uh, lyrics, and it just seems. There's just so much more weight to it because of that. But I agree, like, the name of the song, to me, the, the music is pretty sad, um, but bittersweet. Um, but there isn't much sadness in the song. I, every, you know, the first few times I listened to this, I was just waiting for, like, the turn. And it doesn't happen. And to me, that's really masterful. Especially, and, and, and it falls, and it kind of fits in in that context better after the last couple albums where there are these songs about you know murder and 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 uh just just horrible you know relationships and and violence and all this stuff perversions and it just really feels like this song is him announcing he's turned a corner you know not the corner but uh He's he's taking us somewhere else. Yeah, absolutely. It's um, it's still addressing the sadness inherent in in love. It's still that melancholy, like you like you said, the the music is itself melancholy. Um, but it's like seeing a M Night Shyamalan movie without the twist. There's no murder here. <laughs> There's nothing that comes through, and it it is just the the sadness that accompanies joy. Um. There's actually a really great lecture, I think we might have mentioned it at the very beginning of the podcast, where Cave talks about writing love songs. And one of the examples he gives of a love song um, of his that he 
I think calls a violent dark eyed child that, that doesn't play well with other songs, um, is sad waters. And, you know, he says that they're the offspring of a very painful and difficult pregnancies, I think in reference to his, his songwriting. But, um, he, ref- he keeps coming back to the um, concept of duende, the uh, inexplicable sadness that, that lives in the heart of, of art and of joy. And it's, it's that feeling that I just get so strongly from this song of, um, of joy that just is, is so real and, and communicated in such a way that, that really drives it home without having to go overboard and say, you know, anything about about murder or death or abuse or any of that shit it's just it's just the reality of love to me yeah totally agree and and also the reality that it could end or that innocence could be broken or whatever and that's yeah and this is this is maybe the first song of any of his that i can actually say i identify with and i don't need that from his other stuff he'd still be one of my favorite artists even if it was all songs like from her to eternity but um, you know, there are going to be more of these songs going forward in the middle, later career of his where, you know, you actually do really identify with the speaker. Um, and that's, I mean, honestly, I don't know that I can really name a song we've talked about since then that wasn't an unreliable narrator. Yeah, I think the, cl- I, it's odd, but I think the closest it come to is Train Long Suffering. 100%. Uh-huh. That's, that's the only one that even remotely came to mind. Yeah, it's it's the one that's so removed from a specific event or instance of brutality that, you know, it just speaks to a human emotion. But even that is just rage. Even that is just, you know, lashing out and, and freaking out. Um, whereas this is this is so introspective. This is so it's such a meditation. Um, yeah, it's it's much easier to to picture yourself or an event or, or someone, you know, um, and the way you feel about them. And uh, yeah, no, this. Babe, whenever I think of cabin fever, I think of you. <laughs> That's right. It just doesn't happen. Uh, oh. Unless you have an, you know, an uh, external sort of uh, connection in that way. But nothing inherently bad happens over the course of the song. It's just meant to kind of make you think, make you feel. Make you feel, and, and feel it does. Um, I I am going to go off on a little bit of another tangent here. Because I think that there are some influences that I have stumbled upon, very Da Vinci Code style. But um, I wanted to go back to the line, forever a hostage in your child's world. So I, I, there's too much biblical imagery here. And this is this we're getting to the belaboring part. I'm going to belabor this. Uh, of course, Mary, very biblical name, Virgin Mary. Um, forever a hostage of your child's world. Mm. yeah you see where i'm going with this mm. ah, we're trapped we're trapped um in the realm of god and so this this to me i don't think could possibly be accidental because you know years later in the same lecture that cave gave he, he explicitly said that all love songs they come in many guises but they all address god and uh, the love song, you know, is a sad song. It's a song of sorrow, but they're all trying to get at this universal truth. And I think that he does so in somewhat of a literal way here, um, where Mary is, you know, innocent in the face of this this shadow that she's casting over the world through her son. Um, 
tying this in is where it gets a little Da Vinci code. I looked it up. Mary is in in parts of France known as Our Lady of the Willow. Uh, Ooh, oh, I'm, I love it. I know. So this is actually a really funny story. There was a French farmer in the 1700s named Pierre, and uh, yeah, no shit. This guy, nose, don't you think? A little bit. This guy loved to blaspheme. Like he made his, he loved working on Sundays. He loved working through feasts for the Virgin Mary. He loved making his kids blaspheme, and he made it a point uh, to flaunt it. And so one day he decided that you know he was going to really show everyone in the town they're going to mass on a Sunday. And Pierre decided that oh, I'm going to show them. I'm going to go trim a willow tree on the way to mass. And so everyone's going to walk by and say, oh, look at Pierre. He's such a dick. He's blaspheming. (laughs) And so his wife walks by and he's trimming this willow tree and he trims it and it just starts gushing blood all over him. And it's just from the way it was told, it's a big gory mess. And his wife's like, what the, what the fuck are you doing? And she walks up and she tries to make it bleed and she can't. And Pierre, you know, doesn't know what to think. His wife doesn't know what to think. And so, like, all these other villagers try. They they all come up and trim the willow tree and stab it and can't get a drop of blood out of it. Pierre does it again, just starts spurting all over, just, you know, everywhere. Pierre is now this gory mess. And so uh, the church decides that Pierre has encountered a miracle, that, you know, he's he's receiving a warning from God through this tree that, you know, course correct or you're you're out of here and so a couple years pass because calvinists are all over pierre because pierre starts praying at the tree and they threaten to kill him and he doesn't convert and then seven years later he's looking down the road and who does he see but mary she's she's dressed all in white she's got a long black veil which is you know another we didn't go over kicking against the pricks but one of my favorite songs off of there and she like teleports up to him and says, you're going <laughs> to die soon. And so you got to repent. You're being a dick. You're still blaspheming. And uh, yeah, a couple months later, Pierre gets real sick on his deathbed, repents, gets uh, gets into heaven. And everybody says, yeah, he's visited by Mary. And so Mary in that uh, story is the Lady of the Willow. And they still actually celebrate uh, some some feasts over there for her uh, from this story. All that to say that I think that this ties in in a way to the song in that this this blind need of religion to enforce these strict rules uh, really does keep people hostage and that there's a lot of beauty in religion. There's a lot of beauty in the teachings of, of Jesus, but at the same time, Pierre, much like the rest of us, doesn't have much choice um if we choose to follow that doctrine and so it becomes both a blessing and a curse and you know it becomes a very melancholy love to have a very melancholy and and odd relationship to have with religion um and to me feels you know mary's enforcement thereof coming to him and saying you have to do this stuff you have to repent on your deathbed is so arbitrary but in a way very childlike and very innocent it's it's both authoritarian and innocent at the same time and knowing that Cave has such a fascination with saints and, you know, visions and all sorts of that that sort of mythic stuff, that's that's where I like to go with this song if you really want to do a deep dive and go way off the way off the deep end. Not in the shallows, but you know, 
jump right into the other side of the lake. Uh, I think that there's a, a decent argument here that, you know, her child's world is, is the world that Jesus Christ created, that, you know, Mary in her innocence has, has cast a great shadow over the world, and we're all somewhat hostage to those ideations that, that sprang up so long ago in a way that is both, again, very beautiful and, and very sad. So, well, fuck me. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. <laughs> no, I given Cave's preoccupation with religious stuff, which we'll we'll see more. We've we've seen some, but we'll see more. Hundred percent love that reading. That's why we're here. Dive deep into this stuff. I, uh, man, I wasn't prepared to learn that much today, but here we are. Dive in deep, and uh, you know, one last one last parting blow here. The speaker in that context could even be God himself looking down and, you know, became so enthralled and in love with, with humanity that he allowed himself to become captured by Mary and, you know, turned himself into a man, thereby introducing imperfection to the perfection of God. And Going Zeus looks with back. it. I know, exactly, coming down. <laughs> not, not quite Zeus. He left Going her a Zeus version. with it. <laughs> not quite as weird, but... uh. <laughs> No, you know, uh, sharing that love with the earth and perhaps feeling a little melancholic about what it is he's done and, you know, why he's done it, but not ultimately regretting it. I love that reading. I think it's a reading that means less to me on an emotional level, but gives so much more depth to this song and helps us understand Cave. And and this kind of thing will, will be a valuable service to you, the listener, as we as we continue on, especially if you know very little about uh, religion like us. That's right. We're all learning together. Um, But with that, I mean, there's nothing. I think that there is a great deal of depth here. And that's why at the start I said, I just, this is one of my favorite cave songs. There's just so much to look for here. At the same time, I don't think that there is an argument to say that any one of these things is the truth. And if yes, I, I still take this as just a melancholy love song that I that I can relate to in so many ways. And there there's more there under the surface and I think but I think first and foremost it's it's whatever you feel it to be. Yeah, definitely. And I think you know, from a personal perspective, these types of songs, the the bittersweet instead of the you know, real freaky, real dark ones. These are the songs that are hard to listen to for me, I think. Um, yeah, I still do. I love them. But like St. Huck, you know, it's super grim, super vile, some some questionable language in that song. And I guess there's something about that song I identify with, you know, living in the city. Um, and stuff like Little Girl Tree and From Her to Eternity is, is, you know, the actions of the speakers are very problematic. But this shit feels so much more impactful and dread inducing than those other songs because it's more relatable the shoe doesn't even drop in this song necessarily and you just are left with a sense of unease but it's still beautiful and 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 in that uh bittersweetness feels more true to life i think and really jumps jumps through those headphones and kicks you in the face at a hundred percent it's the difference between a sad movie and a horror movie it's yeah I, I feel so much more at you know a really sad impactful movie um like the pianist versus watching saw which is you know 
horribly graphic. It's more of a Saint Huck style. Um, I don't feel anything when I watch those movies. It's more of a carny. It's more of a carny. Oh, I'm so excited for the carny. But uh, yeah, no, this this is very a very human song against a backdrop of a lot of inhumanity in the past few albums. Absolutely. Well, that's uh, that's Sad Waters. I think a really interesting choice for the first track on this album, at least originally. Um, but it definitely shows him sort of, you know, turning over a new leaf, uh, showing a new side of himself. And yet, next time, track two of this album, in stark contrast to this song, <laughs> is the the epic, the terrifying, the 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 conjurer of horrific visions <laughs> the carney that carney for all you clown lovers out there for all you uh people that like to get into small cars with 10 of your best friends um sean how can they find us on the internet online yes Congratulations on finding the podcast already. Anywhere the podcasts are listened to, you will likely be able to find us. But if you have the desire, the inkling, the need to reach out and, and let us know how we're doing, what you're feeling, or you know any special connection you might have to the song Sad Waters being their most human effort to date, uh, please don't hesitate to do so. You can reach us via email at todayslessonpod at gmail.com. You can reach out to us on Twitter at todayslessonpod. Or if you like what we're doing and want to see more of it, please support us at patreon.com slash today's lesson. Rate and review the podcast anywhere that you can rate and review the podcast. Five stars if you rate and review the podcast. I don't know where you can do that. I don't know. Uh, you know, I just listen to stuff on Spotify, but, you know, subscribe on Patreon. Uh, the more the more America's fun bucks you send us, the more likely we will be to produce you know, Patreon exclusive content, the more time we'll have to kind of do that, the more motivation. Um, but yeah, if you enjoy the podcast, just, you know, spread the word. Word of mouth is great. Um, you know, retweet us uh, on the website with that good bluebird. That's right. Tell your friends, tell everybody. And we, we've said it a lot. Five stars only. As Andrew said, I have no idea where you can rate us. I don't know what sites you can do that on. You can't do it on Spotify. And that's the only thing I listen to. But if you go out there and rate us, please. You know, a lot of podcasts will tell you to do that. And so I think we just kind of decided to (laughs) adapt that. But hey, if you know where to do it and you can do it, I mean, look, we'll take it. We'll take whatever we can get. Uh, I'm assuming there's a rating system. Yeah, no, if it's five stars only. Unless it's on a scale of 10 stars, in which case give us 10 stars. I'm assuming you can rate us somewhere. Do it. The most um, of whatever increment is trafficked in by that site, just do it. Come on. We we, we haven't hurt you in any way, have we? No. And that, that alone is worth the maximum number of stars. And I just realized, don't be cute. Don't go somewhere where it's out of 10 stars and give us five just because we told you to. You know what we're saying. Go do it right. We'll fucking kill you if we... Oh, man. <laughs> You'll think... You think that's Whoa. funny. You think that's funny. <laughs> we'll see. I'm going to hold Andrew back, but I feel the same. <laughs> we'll take turns holding each other back comically. <laughs> That's right. Sean, it's been great talking about this uh this song 
and this album i'm excited to, to start album uh technically album four but three uh for our podcast that's right we're always we'll always be one album behind at this point and we'll always make the distinction but uh, i too am excited to dive in and uh see what this album holds because it is all over the fucking place until next time when we talk about the carney uh I love you, Mary. Aw. Oh, oh, Gary, you have. <laughs> Here comes Gary. <laughs> uh, bye. Bye.